Well, hello, folks, and here it is. Another April is upon us, and that means baseball has started. And don't forget, Sunday, May 21st, it's the Mothers, Brothers, and Sisters baseball outing to Springfield, where we'll get a tour of Mothers Brewing, and we'll see a Springfield Cardinals game in Hammond Field. Now, at the end of the narration, during the credits, I'll give you all the details, and you need to get signed up. We only have 50 spots available, and they're going fast. And more on that at the end of the podcast. So speaking of baseball, this Sunday marked the 141st opening day in the history of the National League of Professional Baseball Clubs. 19-time National League champion St. Louis Cardinals took to the field at Bush Stadium against the 2016 World Champion Chicago Cubs. Now, say that while you can. It hasn't been spoken in 108 years, and it might be another century before it comes around. It was a great game if you didn't see it, with the Cards winning in the 10th on a walk-off hit by right fielder Randall Gritchick. Now, the last time that the Cubs won the World Series in 1908, they also opened the next season against their Midwest rivals from the gateway to the West. Now, that game 108 years ago saw the Cubs victorious. And since the Cardinals joined the National League in 1892, the two teams have played each other over 2,300 times, with the Cubs holding a slight edge with 50 more wins than the Redbirds. But... With 11 World Series championships to Chicago's measly three, St. Louis has left its mark as the most successful franchise in the National League. Baseball is such an integral part of American history. Before it was even baseball, it was a part of us. The first settlers from Britain brought their ancestral bat and ball games to the village greens and fields of colonial America. And as the game developed, other groups of immigrants also adopted baseball as their own, including the Germans who arrived in the mid-19th century. And you know what else the Germans brought? They brought lager beer. And along with peanuts, popcorn, and Cracker Jack, nothing says baseball quite like beer. But you know what? Beer and baseball almost didn't happen. And baseball in St. Louis would have died in the 1880s had it not been for a German immigrant saloon keeper who saw a chance to make money in baseball and beer. And his name wasn't Anheuser or Bush. I'm Alan Tatman, and because no good story ever began with, this one time we were eating a salad This is history, the story of alcohol. All right, here we go. I've got a nice bottle of Miller High Life right here. Yeah. Good German style, German American style, American lager beer. Oh, yeah. Right there. And I've also got a shot of bourbon whiskey. Cody Road. Thanks, uh, Chris and Lauren. Great stuff. And anybody out there, if you want to send me a bottle of really good whiskey, I'm more than happy to accept your donation. Thank you. Anyway. On the night of October 27th in 2011, I stood at the end of the bar at Patty Malone's and dejectedly watched as there in the top of the seventh inning, pitcher Lance Lynn of the Cardinals had just been brought into the game and he promptly gave up back-to-back home runs to the Texas Rangers, spotting the American League champions with a 7-4 lead in Game 6, with Texas leading in the World Series three games to two. And it looked bleak. A barroom full of people fell silent. A few folks left, not because they'd given up on the Cardinals, but because like that old farm dog who is just a bit too long in the tooth, They knew that the end was nigh and they just wandered off, just wanted to be alone at the very end. And I felt the same way. I just wanted to go home, but it was my pub and I had to stay and watch the bitter end with the rest of the faithful. 
But then we had a glimmer of hope. In the bottom of the eighth, Alan Craig hit a solo home run to pull the Redbirds within two. Then in the bottom of the ninth, with one out, Albert Pujols doubled into left field. The Rangers walked Lance Berkman to put the tying run on first base, but then they struck out Craig, the hero of the inning before, on a called third strike. And with two outs, St. Louis native David Freeze came to the plate. And being down in the count, one ball and two strikes, he scorched a high line drive over right fielder Nelson Cruz's head for a triple, which plated both Pujols and Berkman to tie the game. At that moment, I thought all of the mortar in the old brick pub was going to pop out from beneath the bricks. Our joy wasn't long, for in the top of the 10th, Josh Hamilton hit a towering home run to give the Rangers a 9-7 lead. And in the bottom of that inning, the Cardinals scraped together a series of hits and culminated with a Lance Berkman single that scored John Jay and once again tied the game. The Rangers failed to score in the top of the 11th, and then David Freeze once more came to the plate and forever cemented himself into baseball legend with a game-winning home run to straightaway center field, tying the series at three games each. I'm surprised that the old pub remained standing. The next night, I remember actually very little of it other than for some reason I knew that the Cardinals were going to win. And, and when David Murphy of the Rangers hit a fly ball into left field and it landed in Alan Craig's mitt for the final out of game seven, I was overcome with emotion. I remembered my grandfather, who I watched many games with, and my dad, and I called old friends from across the country who I'd held a fondness for the Cardinals with for many years. We had won. It was our team. You know, it does sound funny when we as adults, we get so attached to sports franchises. And other than Freeze and pitcher Kyle McClellan, there were no other players on that team that were from the St. Louis area. They, they're really just mercenaries when you come right down to it especially in this era of free agency. But the team, as so many baseball teams, has an old tradition. And year after year, generation after generation, grandfathers take grandsons, who then take their sons, who then take their sons, to these baseball games. To these teams, they become a part of our soul, our collective family, our traditions. And in St. Louis, we owe that to a German immigrant saloon keeper and grocer who in the 1880s took an interest in the business of baseball, a man named Chris Vonder Ahe. Baseball came to America from England, and despite the made-up story that Albert Spaulding and his commission of, on the origins of baseball came up with in the late 1800s. The game of rounders is from Britain, and it is still played in Britain and Ireland today, mostly by school children, and I've seen it played, and there's no doubt once you watch this game, this is where baseball came from. Once when I was in Ireland, we stopped in Adair in County Limerick at the Visitor Center, which is right next to a, an elementary school, and I watched some kids out there on the playground playing rounders. And I was like, yep, that's, that's the first time I'd ever seen it played. I'd seen it, I'd seen it described in books, but I've never seen it played. But I watched it that day, and I realized, yes, this is where we learned how to play baseball. But back in the 1800s, because of anti-British sentiment and America's desire to have its own unique culture, the leaders of the baseball community just were not comfortable with recognizing that fact. And they came up with this legend of Abner Doubleday inventing the game. Now, Doubleday was a Civil War general who's from Cooperstown, New York, where they put the Baseball Hall of Fame because he's from there. But this story was made up like 20 years after Doubleday died. Nobody ever knows if he did play baseball. Nobody, nobody ever was able to ask him if he invented baseball. And it's pretty much, historically speaking, probably not true at all. But 
we all need our national mythologies, and Abner Doubleday, as Mike Shannon is so happy to say during Cardinal broadcast, ha, look what old Abner did now. It's a part of the lore, and it's, again, it's not true. We know that baseball, or games like ball, which is what it was not commonly called, or town ball, or base of ball, it's called these different things, they were being played as far back as colonial America because there are town and village ordinances telling people, telling kids not to play ball near window houses that have glass windows. If you really want to know the story and the history of baseball, go watch the Ken Burns documentary on it. It's fabulous. And it has got to be the ultimate resource on the history of baseball and America and how the two relate. I encourage you to watch it if you're so interested. But anyway, the popularity of the game really took off after the Civil War, and there became a standardization of rules across the country, mainly under the auspices of the National Association of Baseball Players. This was an amateur organization which codified rules and regulations uh, pertaining to the game. But it was still, the game was completely amateur until 1869 when the Cincinnati Red Stockings declared themselves professional and began to recruit and pay the best ball players in the United States. Two years later, the first professional league was formed in 1871, the National Association of Professional Baseball Players. But it was really a league in name only, as it was more of a loose confederation of teams that they had no fixed schedule, they had no real standings to see who had more wins or losses, and they had no formalized championship series. And then finally in 1875, some of the teams grew fed up with the loosey-goosey structure of the National Association of Professional Baseball Players, and they split led by the Chicago White Stockings. Now, this is not the White Sox of today in the American League. This is actually the Cubs. But they were called the White Stockings up until, I don't know, late 1890s. They were called the Colts for a while. They finally became the Cubs, I think, in 1900 or 1902. I'd have to look it up. It's not that important. If you're that interested, Google it yourself. Anyway, they, they were the ones that led the defection from the National Association of Professional Baseball Players. And they led the way by convincing the best teams of the association to form a new league known as the National League of Professional Baseball Clubs, which is the national league that we have today. And it began league play in the summer of 1876. Now, the president of the Chicago Ball Club, William Ambrose Holbert, he was named president of this new league, and he was the one who pioneered and set the, the, the rules as the league was forming, a fixed schedule which demanded that the team play all of their games, and he insisted that the teams follow the league rules to the letter or risk expulsion from the league. And excuse me, I'm thirsty, I need some more whiskey. All right, where was I? Okay, now, some of the rules that the National League put together would seem reasonable to us today, such as no gambling in the ballparks, expulsion of players who threw games. They enforced agreed-upon contracts so players could not jump to other teams in the middle of the season. But then you look at some of the other rules, and they're just completely aberrant by our modern sensibilities, and then some of them are just incomprehensible. Why the fuck would you do that? And so... Firstly, the gentleman's agreement, as it was politely called. It was not a written rule, but nonetheless, it was strictly enforced. And what the gentleman's agreement did is excluded all non-white players from the league. And it also stated that league teams would never play exhibition games against teams that had African-American or Hispanic players. Now... This hurt those more liberal teams that uh, were independent or were in minor leagues. This hurt them financially because they, couldn't, they could no longer play exhibition games against the major league National League teams. And that would bring in a good bit of extra revenue before the season, during the season, and even after the end of the season into the box office. So the result was that these lesser leagues and these independent teams 
and subsequently other major league teams, uh, leagues and associations that came along, they began to follow this gentleman agreement exclusion rule of all non-white players. It's not until 1947 when Branch Rickey, the president of the Brooklyn Dodgers, signed standout UCLA athlete and World War II veteran Jackie Robinson to a major league contract with the Dodgers that the color line in Major League Baseball was finally broken. The National League also invoked the reserve clause, which bound a player to a club for life unless that player was traded by the club or outright released from his contract. The result of this was that players had no authority in negotiations. The club held all the cards. The player had to play for what the team offered and at the, uh, at the demands of the team, or if they didn't play, they didn't get paid. And if they didn't want to, if the team didn't want to, they wouldn't let you play at all. And this was standard operations in all professional sports, not just baseball, through the late 19th and into the late 20th century. And not until 1970s when Kurt Flood of the Cardinals challenged the rule when he was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies, was subsequently five years later overturned by the courts and opening up the era of free agency in professional sports as we know it today. But possibly the two rules that would strike us as most peculiar when we look at the state of baseball here in the 21st century are these. Prohibition of games played on Sundays and no sale of alcohol at all in any of the parks. Now, the leadership of the National National League, particularly Holbert, looked upon baseball as a game of the better folk. Nativist American stock, those people who made America great. And with mandatory 50-cent gate admission by all of the clubs, that's quite a chunk for the average working person to pay, who at the time only made about $50 a month. And with the games only being played on workday afternoons, now this is 70 years before nighttime baseball ever is tried. There was little financial ability or time available for working class people, especially the laboring immigrant classes, to take in a baseball game. Now, another thing was happening in America in the 1870s. As so often is the case in the decade following a war, there was an economic depression. Now, of course, it was nothing like the stock market collapse in 1929, but nonetheless, it still had an impact on the economy. Jobs were scarce, and of course, when this happens, there's always a fueled wave of anti-immigrant sentiment, which, of course, President Holbert of the National League, he used that to justify the higher cost of tickets to keep out the unwashed rabble from the ballparks. But attendance to the games was down all across the board. The Depression not only affected the working class, but also the business class. These are the lawyers, accountants, business owners, white-collar businessmen who are able to, they're able to take the freedom of an afternoon and slip away from work to go watch a ball game. Got to take a drink. Anyway, back to what I was saying. These are the only guys that have the time to get away from the office, right? To go slip away and watch a ball game. But they also saw a drop in their revenues, and subsequently the tightening of a belt requires that some things be eliminated from the budget. And as most of us know that have had to live on a budget, usually entertainment is the first thing to go. Enter our German immigrant friend in St. Louis, Chris von der Eiche. Von der Eiche arrived in St. Louis in 1867, and he didn't know a baseball from a cantaloupe. But this 19-year-old Deutschman was a bright fellow, and even arriving in St. Louis in the middle of an economic downturn, he was able to find a job. He landed a clerk's position in a grocery store in the west end of St. Louis, where a number of other German immigrants and Irish immigrants had settled. And within a couple of years, he became a partner in the store, and he opened an adjacent saloon and beer garden. In 1872, he took his life savings of $1,172, and he bought out the original owner, and he took the operations over completely alone. 
He moved the business into a larger building just a block south at the corner of Grand Avenue, later to be called Grand Boulevard, and St. Louis Avenue. In time, he was also able to buy out a feed store, a flower store, and a butcher shop. But the thing that kept catching his eye was just down the street, the Grand Avenue Baseball Park. Home to a successful on-the-field, but financially struggling franchise called the St. Louis Brown Stockings. Now, these are not the St. Louis Browns of the American League St. Louis Browns, who left St. Louis in 19, was it 54, I think, and went to uh, Baltimore and became the Orioles. Maybe it was 56. Anyway, doesn't matter. Look it up, Google. Anyway, Vander Ahe, he watched as people walked past his shops to the ballpark, and he began to contemplate. How might I get some of the money that was in their pockets? Now, a few of the few of the crowds after the games, they would come and relax at his beer garden and have a beer, but not very many, just a few. And so Vander Ahe, to get his foot in the door at the park, he worked his way into the leadership role for another baseball club, the Grand Avenue Baseball Club, an amateur team that played in the park on those days when the brown stockings weren't using it. And in 1876, Vander Ahe landed a spot on the amateur club's board of directors. Now, the organization vowed to have only the best of amateur players and offer the spectators a brand of baseball to rival the major leagues. This, of course, was a good bit of hyperbole, but they were able to offer some things that the major league team couldn't offer, and that was Sunday games, cheap tickets, and beer by the mug and whiskey by the shot. Von der Eye even secured the beer concession for the park during the Brown Stockings National League games, despite the league rules that said it was illegal to sell alcohol in the park. But until somebody made them stop, Von der Eye and the Brown Stockings ownership turned a blind eye and was going to make the money off of the sale of alcohol. But it wasn't alcohol sales that did in the brown stockings. It was gambling. And a scandal that occurred, not in St. Louis, but in Louisville, Kentucky. After the end of the 1877 season, four Louisville players were indicted by the league for throwing the championship series against the Boston Red Red Stockings. They weren't the Red Sox yet. They were still the Red Stockings. Anyway, released by Louisville, some of the players signed with St. Louis, who was already being looked at by the league because there was a connection between some of their players who were a little bit too cozy with Chicago gambling interest. Now, the National League banned all of the Louisville players who had signed with St. Louis, along with a handful of additional St. Louis players, and dejected and disgusted the ownership of the team folded rather than to try to cobble a team together for the next season. And so ended Major League Baseball in St. Louis, at least for the year of 1878. Hmm. 1879 and 1880 were pretty miserable years baseball-wise in St. Louis. A group of players who were out of work, they pulled a team together and they they tried to re-enter the National League, but that wasn't going to happen. And they split the measly gate receipts between themselves after paying the rent on the ballpark, and the ball players managed to limp through these two horrible years. The brand of ball they played was amateur compared to those of the National League and other established teams, and since they were unaffiliated with any league, they had to rely upon games wherever they could pick them up, and most of the time it was against amateur teams that were even worse than they were, and as could be imagined, when you're playing shitty baseball, the crowds are going to stay home. Now, the player manager of the club, Ned Cuthbert, he was once a one-time bona fide baseball star, but uh, by 1880, he was well past his prime, and he saw a savior for the team in Vanderaje. He approached the German saloon keeper, grocer, business leader, and he asked him about staking a financial interest in the ball club. 
Now, at first, Von der Ahe was reluctant to risk his hard-earned money. He knew he didn't know much about baseball. He just understood that what people wanted, and what they wanted especially, those in the German and Irish immigrant community, they wanted some time with their families and have a nice cold beer and a whiskey and eating together on their one day off each week on Sunday afternoons after they had returned home from church. And they were already doing just that at Vonder Ihe's Saloon and Beer Garden along with the other taverns and saloons and beer gardens in the west end of St. Louis. Immigrants coming to America in the mid-1800s, now primarily but not limited to Germans and Irish, and Germans both Lutherans and Catholics and Irish Catholics, they have no aversion. They have a very different attitude towards drinking than the majority of the old stock Protestant Americans do. Now, this doesn't mean that the Americans didn't drink. They did. They just didn't do it in public. They weren't open about it. It wasn't a family thing like it, it, it is with these immigrant communities. <laughs> the, the old joke that I always grew up with, and I'm sure many of you heard it before, why do you always t- when you go fishing, why do you always take two Baptists with you instead of just one? Because if you take one, he'll drink all of your beer. I've also heard that said about Presbyterians, but every Presbyterian I've ever known liked to have a whiskey. That must be that Scottish background. That's what I attribute that to. Anyway, what was I talking about? Okay, so beer, wine, whiskey, schnapps. These were seen as gifts from God by these immigrant groups. A diversion from a life that was full of hardship with relatively few opportunities for immediate pleasure and relaxation. Now, I grew up in a second and third generation immigrant community. Drinking was a part of life, and yes, there were drunkards and there were people who got in trouble because of their drinking, but those numbers, when looking at the community overall, were very, very small. Most people that I knew grew uh, when, I, when I was growing up, they drank, and they drank responsibly, whether they were Methodist or Catholic, and those were the two primary faiths in the community where I was raised. Alcohol was always a part of community gatherings. A number of times growing up at the local tavern, Al's Tavern in Alaska, just south of Hannibal, I saw Father McCorkle and Reverend Trevathan share a cold one together over the bar. It was a part of life. The people in that community worked hard, most of them in the cement plant, which was the reason that their fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers had been drawn to that community in the first place. And the life of a laborer at that plant or a quarryman in the limestone pits was hard, and it could be short. A friend of mine from that same community, Greg Andrews, a history professor in his own right in Texas, he and I were talking once and we agreed. It wasn't for themselves that our forefathers came to this country. They came here for us and the generations to follow. They left what they knew. They took a dangerous voyage, sometimes at great personal cost, across an ocean. Many of them died. They didn't make it. They died on the way. One out of three people during the the late 18th and early 19th century died on the ocean voyage coming over. And they left what they knew. They took a dangerous voyage. And they worked hard to establish a life in a new world, not for themselves, but for their children and their children's children. And as rough and as bleak as the voyage and the migration was for the Europeans, think how horrible it had to be for Africans that were brought over here in slavery. But these European immigrants that were coming over in the mid-1800s, these are the same people that Chris von der Ahe knew. And he knew them from his neighborhood in the west end of St. Louis. And after some persuasion by Cuthbert, the German shopkeeper began to see a future for himself in the American pastime of baseball. Now, this is hard for us to believe today, considering the popularity of baseball in St. Louis now. But for the first few decades that it was introduced to the city, It struggled terribly. 
Now, American-born businessmen who brought the game to the community didn't quite know how to market the sport to spectators. Or in the case of potential immigrant attendees to the games, they didn't even want to. They looked down upon them. They did not want them coming to the ballparks. It took an immigrant to understand how to bring an immigrant audience to the ball game. Van der Ahe was convinced he could make a fortune with cheap tickets, booming beer and snack sales, and big crowds. And being a ladies' man, as Van der Ahe was, he also knew what would bring in the men, and that would be pretty girls. And he formulated a plan for marketing to both sexes. Now, he knew that the women would only come to the place where they felt comfortable and safe. And so the first thing that he had done was refurbish the old ballpark. By all accounts, by 1880, the Grand Avenue ballpark was a dump with a worn and weathered grandstand and rotting wooden bleachers. It was going to take more than paint to fix it up. Now, he was able to get the rental rights to the property and immediately he invested $2,500, a small fortune, mind you, in that time, on rejuvenation of the facility. He founded a new corporation in which he was the majority stockholder and that picked up the lease on the park, the Sportsman's Park and Club Association, from which the ballpark would take its new name, for which it would be known thereafter until purchased by Gussie Bush in 1953. Van der Ahe envisioned the facility being more than just a baseball park. He wanted to see a bowling alley, a cinder track for sprinters and track and field events. He even allowed the St. Louis Gun, Gun Club to hold shooting sports on the ground. <laughs> a couple of years later, the city put a kibosh on that. Uh, the open firing of firearms within the city limits. Uh, iffy at best. Anyway. And just beyond right field, Van der Eye, the saloon keeper, built his envisioned beer garden with tables, chairs, and awnings for that hot St. Louis summer sun. Von der Ihe's next move was to try to get readmission to the National League, but the established clubs would have nothing to do with it. They were finished with St. Louis. The taint of gambling from before, combined with St. Louis' historically low game attendance numbers, and the fact that Von der Ihe made it no secret that he fully intended on selling beer and having Sunday games, that immediately put the brakes on any consideration of admitting the St. Louis team back into the league. But the German saloon keeper just shrugged his shoulders. <laughs> the league's refusal was just as well, he thought. He had bigger plans, and he didn't see the National League being involved in any of those. See, the National League, with its required 50-cent admission fee to all sanctioned games, both regular season and exhibition, was the first thing that Von der Eye had no use for. And the second was the league's ban on alcohol sales. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, although three, all three of these things go to hand in hand together, was the prohibition of Sunday games. Von der Eye wanted to open the gates and welcome working class citizens of the community, including the immigrants of St. Louis, who toiled all week and could not get away for afternoon games during the regular weekdays. Also, this was the, before the days of the 40-hour work week. Labor unions and the creation of the weekend are far, far off in the future. Nearly all of the laboring class worked a full day on Saturday, leaving only Sunday as their day to do what they wished. So, Von der Ahe dropped the ticket price to 25 cents, half of what the National League demanded. A sum of money that the working man could afford to spend on an afternoon of, of entertainment. Now, maybe not every week, but easily once or twice a month, and with the team being on the road for the other half of the time, that meant that he might get, get them to come at least for one Sunday out of the two that they would be able to do it. And with the lower ticket prices, Sunday games and beer sales, Von der Eye was on the forefront of making baseball America's pastime for all Americans. 
But the St. Louis team, still calling themselves the Browns, had one minor problem. They didn't have a league. 1881 was a season of exhibition games against minor league teams as the National League had forbidden any of its member teams from playing the Browns. So the St. Louis team was finding it difficult to get opponents on the schedule, both at home and on the road. But then a couple of sports writers had an idea. Cincinnati, now also a town full of lager-loving German immigrants, had lost its National League standing because it, too, was serving beer at the park and playing on Sundays. Now, the idea, this idea I was talking about, was hatched between sports writers Al Spink of St. Louis's The Sporting News and O.P. Kaler of the Cincinnati Enquirer. Cincinnati should round up as many of the ball players from the old team as they could still find around the city, slap the nostalgic name of the Reds onto a uniform, and come on over to St. Louis for a three-game Saturday-Sunday-Monday series the last week of May in 1881. It was gold. The Browns and the Reds brought in thousands of spectators over that weekend, and it was then that the idea emerged among Von der Ahe and the sports writers that maybe you didn't need a league to be successful. Word spread through semi-pro teams all over the Midwest of what was going on in St. Louis, and teams began to contact Spink, who was now more or less Von der Ahe's secretary, and games were scheduled to be played in St. Louis for expense money. Yeah, they'd pay their train fare to get to the Gateway City. They'd put them up in second-rate hotels, off giving them meals and trolley fare while they were in town. And these minor league teams and these semi-pro teams, they were lining up for the fun. How good was the baseball? It didn't fucking matter. Von der Ahe, the truth was, it was subpar. But the saloon keeper didn't care. Thousands of people in St. Louis came out for the party. Baseball was back in the Gateway City. Mugs of beer and shots of whiskey were moving across the counters. Vonder Ihe, who knew little about baseball, didn't watch much of the game anyway. He kept his eyes on the barman and the box office, where the nickels, the dimes, and the quarters were adding up. He once said to Spink after a game where it was standing room only, Vot a fine, fine big crowd, but Al, the game, was it a good game? You know, I don't know nothing about this. Yeah, I know it's a shitty German accent, but go, I'm just trying to keep you entertained. Now, it wasn't long before more clubs and cities began to take notice of the crowds and the dollars that the St. Louis Browns were bringing in. The Akrons of Ohio, the Philadelphia Athletics, the Brooklyn Atlantics, all successful clubs in their own right, they were all ready to get on a train and come to St. Louis for a piece of the gate from Sportsman's Park. And before the 1881 season was over, Von der Ahe and the fellow independent club presidents and owners came to a conclusion. To hell with the National League. We'll start our own. In November of 1881 in Cincinnati, I'm parched, hang on. In November of 1881 in Cincinnati, the American Association was formed with six charter clubs the St. Louis Browns, the Cincinnati Reds, the Louisville Eclipse, the Pittsburgh Alleghenies, the Philadelphia Athletics, and the Brooklyn Atlantics. Now, caveat here, the Brooklyn team pulled out before the beginning of the season in a dispute over how road gate receipts would be split, but Baltimore Brewer Harry Vonderhorst, seeing what Von der Ahe had done in St. Louis, he was ready with, try to say Vonderhorst and Vonder Ahe in the same sentence real quickly after you've been drinking beer and bourbon. It's not easy. Anyway, after seeing what Vonder Ahe had done in St. Louis, he was ready with a team to take the Brooklyn team's place because he was wanting to sell some beer. Now, the New York Metropolitans, one of the most successful independent professional clubs in the country, also attended the organizational meeting, but they declined entering 
as it would mean that they would be barred by the National League from playing in the very financially lucrative exhibition games against that league's clubs. Now, of course, the association's rules were laid out. Ticket prices would be 25 cents at all games, half the cost of the National League. There was no variation on that. Sunday games were not only permitted, they were encouraged to be a part of the schedule. Side note, the scheduling of baseball games even today goes back to this time. Every team would play a standard of two, three-game series every week against two different teams, of course, with a weekend series of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday games being the same two te- between the same two teams being invariable, with a second series over the weekdays with either Monday or Thursday being a day off or a travel day. Another thing that the association considered was signing those players that the National League had banned because of behavioral issues, i.e. gambling, an association with gamblers, but only if the case of each player was reviewed by the league before admittance to the teams. There was one minor disagreement, but it didn't last very long. Some of the owners believing that public opinion would hurt them. Now remember, this is at the height of the temperance movement. That's 1881. We're just, what, four, well, 40 years from prohibition, and this is when everything's ramping up, right? Some of the teams believed that they had to ban alcohol sales at the park. But as soon as Vanderahe and the Cincinnati ownership showed the other teams how much money they were making off of bar sales to the tune of about $5,000 pure profit per season, and that is a fortune in in the 1880s, the anti-drinking owners quickly changed their minds. Only Louisville. Now, remember where Louisville's at. It's in the middle of the Bible Belt, and it had a very, very small immigrant population. Now, Louisville declined on their own volition to have beer sales in the park. But as beer stands ran by two entrepreneurial fellows began to emerge on the streets outside of Eclipse Park during the 1882 season, when the ball club saw the money that they were raking in, they reconsidered and they decided, yes, Alcohol sales in the park in 1883 makes sense. Now, National League President William Ambrose Holbert, from his office in Chicago, was furious. He saw the threat that the American Association would have against the older established league. And like so many bigots, he did not want to see, he did not want to go in that direction for whatever reason. Holbert may have been a very well-meaning man, but he was wrong. You cannot stop progress. You cannot stop the future. His biggest fear, of course, was that the American Association would start to put teams in the cities of established National League teams and draw off their gate receipts. Mockingly, he started to refer to the American Association as the Beer and Whiskey Circuit. And he then pinned letters to some of the owners in the association where he thought he might be able to bully and intimidate them into leaving the new baseball league. He wrote, The whole purpose of the league, meaning the established National League, is to promote and elevate the game, make it worthy of the patronage and support and respect of the best class of people. The league will never recognize an association of clubs by fraternizing with it or any club members of it, which prostitutes itself by becoming a sanctuary for the league's disqualified players. In other words, what he was saying is, you'll never play any interleague games against the National League, which... Well, which would bring a bit of money into the coffers uh, for exhibition games, but the American Association teams, including Mr. Vonder Vonder Ahe, excuse me, 
they looked at this and said, yeah, well, sure, we're not going to make money off of that, but we're not going to give up our liquor sales. That's where we're making our money. Hulbert went on in the letter about how un-American it was to serve alcohol and that the Sunday games on the Lord's Sabbath would just draw away crowds during the week. But Van der Ahe and his fellow owners, they laughed. Really, they did. Times were a-changing in baseball. And if the National League wanted a fight, the association was ready to give it to them. Next week, we're going to talk about how two fellas helped Vonder Ahe and the Browns and the rest of the American Association beat the National League at their own game. And these two fellas, well, they were a couple of Irishmen. One was a manager, a little fellow named Sullivan from the County Clare of Ireland, and the other was a lanky, far-ranging first baseman from Chicago named Charlie Comiskey. History Episode 20 was written and produced by me, Alan Tatman. The technical director of history is Brian McGeorge. History, the story of alcohol, is a Wild Irish production, all rights reserved, and is recorded at River's Edge Studios and Patty Malone's Irish Pub in Jefferson City, Missouri. To learn more about our pub, find us on Facebook at Patty Malone's Irish Pub. And this week's phrase for you podcast listeners and patrons at the pub is take me out to the ball game. Tell your server or bartender that phrase and get a special off any 20-ounce draft beer. This Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, April 4th, 5th, and 6th between 3 and 9 p.m. Take me out to the ball game. Only one special per person per day, and this offer is not valid to anyone under the age of 21. A shout-out, of course, to all of our Patreon patrons for your continued support as we move into our sixth month of history, the Story of Alcohol podcast. Salute. And if you would like to be a supporting Patreon patron, it's very simple. It's real easy. Go to the website, and in the upper right-hand corner of the page, click on support. There you'll find out how to become a monthly contributor to the program. You'll be helping us to offset web hosting, podcast platform fees, as well as underwriting our expenses related to recording and editing software and time spent researching, writing, recording, and editing. Thanks again. Any and all support is appreciated. And now... Let's talk about the special announcements. First, we're going to do a live recording of History at Patty Malone's on Saturday, April 22nd. And send me your questions, because that's all it's going to be. And if you want to come down to the podcast, we'll get you on the air. Uh, Well, it won't be live. We're doing a recording. But it'll be a live recording in front of other people. But come on down. We're going to have a good time that night. That's Saturday, April 22nd at the pub. We'll start the show sometime around 9-ish or shortly thereafter, depending upon how the dinner crowd goes on. Uh, You know, what's it matter? We're going to have plenty of time after everybody's done eating. Anyway, so if you've got a question, just send it to me at cheers at history.com. It'll be a great night and a lot of fun at the pub. Hope to see you there. And, of course, it's uh, the history happening. Mothers, sisters, and brothers baseball outing. Sunday, May 24th. 21st. Sunday, May 21st. It's the Sunday after Mother's Day. Okay? The week after Mother's Day. We're off for a tour of Mother's Brewing in Springfield, and we'll take in a game in Hammond Field to see the Springfield Cardinals. The package includes coach transportation from Patty Malone's to Springfield and back, complimentary beverages on the coach, courtesy of Fectal Beverage, Personal guided tour of Mother's Brewing. I don't know if it'll be Jeff, the owner, who will be giving us the tour, but if not, it'll be one of his very, very qualified uh, employees. And we'll have beer samples there and a lunch, courtesy of Fectal Beverage at the brewery. Dugout box tickets at Hammond Field to see the Springfield Cardinals take on, I think it's Northwest Arkansas. Anyway, what's that matter? It's going to be a fun time. And you'll get a box or a bag supper to eat on the coach on your way back home to Jefferson City. The entire day of great fun, only $59 per person. But here's the deal. If you're a Patreon patron, take off 10%. Hell, take off 10% 
plus a dime. Make it $6. That's only it's only $53 for our Patreon patrons to join up. Now there's only 50 seats. So $59 if you're a not a Patreon patron and $53 if you are a Patreon patron. That's Sunday, May 21st, only 50 seats, so move fast. Reserve your tickets. Email me at cheers at history.com. A lot of you have got my phone number. Send me a text. Come by the pub. If I'm not there, tell Marilee. She'll write it on a piece of paper and give it to me. We'll get you into the list. Don't wait, because tickets are going to go fast. I'm sure they will. I'm, I haven't announced it yet. Well, it, this is Tuesday, right? I'm announcing it today to the public. It's going on the Facebook page today. So don't wait around. Shout outs to everyone who shared and retweeted this week, and especially any new listeners out there. Thank you. Welcome to the community. Thank you, folks. We appreciate the support and helping us to spread the gospel of history. Please follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash, or this is that forward slash. It's the one that leans to the right. That's forward slash history. Please like and share the post about the episodes when they come out each way. That's the best way we can get the word out to the people. And if you've got a friend that's a history nerd like me, who likes to have a drink like me, or maybe they're a podcast listener, tell them about history. It's greatly appreciated. Find us on Twitter at history. And if you're a fan of the show and you're so moved, a glowing review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher would be fantastic. Thanks so much. Any questions or show ideas, send me an email to cheers at history.com. You can find more information about the podcast on our website and blog, www.history.com, as well as all the links to connect on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, but you don't need that because you're already listening. And a big shout out to our patrons again. Thanks, guys, for helping us make this happen. The theme music for history is provided by Ben Sound. Do you need music for a project? Then contact www.bensound.com and see what solutions they might have for you. That's B-E-N-S-O-U-N-D.com. And again, to all of you, guys, thanks again for listening. Thanks so much. I promise I'll keep trying to get better, even if I keep drinking. And have a great week. Be safe. Drink responsibly. Don't drink and drive. So until next week, if I don't see you at the pub, I'll see you right here on the podcast. And of course... Merrily. Thanks, honey. You are the Victoria to my shame. You are the measure of my dreams. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>